the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And as we head into our second hour of our daily three-hour tour, it is a delight to bring back Dr. Michael Rubin. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, author of several important books, including Seven Pillars, What Really Causes Instability in the Middle East, and my favorite, Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regimes, among several others. Michael, Thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Seth. You betcha. You know this area that we're going to talk about as well as anyone, having spent the kind of time you have spent there. Your most recent column in the Washington Examiner, Biden's Afghanistan mess be, may be worse than Britain's inf- most infamous retreat. I was trying to think, Michael, and I'll go through your piece with you in a moment, but I was going through my study of history over the past two weeks, and I'm trying to think of an example in our history of a more ignominious, embarrassing, and shameful retreat. I don't know if you have any candidates right now. This one's sitting pretty much on top as far as I can tell. I think you're absolutely right. When we look at the analogies which some people draw, um, I mean, even though it wasn't us, this isn't Dunkirk, because at Dunkirk, hundreds of thousands were evacuated, but they were evacuated to continue the fight. Likewise, with the Berlin airlift, which many of those in the Biden team like to uh, compare their evacuation of Afghanistan to, the the issue wasn't um, surrendering. It was actually holding firm against forces of evil, against the communists. And the genesis for the crisis wasn't in Washington in some arbitrary decision, but rather in Moscow. And then some people also bring up Saigon, 1975. And of course, that was shameful, and we left many people behind. But there was still a hope that when we left some behind, that they would reemerge from the communist re-education camps. The Taliban's understanding of re-education is a bullet in the back of the head. And so when Biden leaves people behind, he has to know that regardless of what the Taliban say, he's likely condemning them to a death sentence. So this really is shameful. We're talking with Michael Rubin from the American Enterprise in, um, Institute. Michael, the withdrawal, you write, the withdrawal was strategic malpractice. Leaving Americans behind was unforgivable. What comes next could be even worse. If I could focus with you on that for a minute, you're a student of this region, you're a student of American foreign policy. You're not a student, you're a teacher of it. Sorry about that. Well, I mean, basically, Seth, what I was getting at is we've created our nation's largest hostage crisis ever. And if we think about the 1979 to 1981 Iran hostage crisis, that involves 52 diplomats being held for 444 days. If we take the State Department's numbers, there's more than 100, and in all, all likelihood, a lot more Americans who have been left behind. I think there's a couple dozen from one high school district in California alone. Right. Now the question is, what happens if the Taliban gets their hands on them? 
Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, spoke this past Sunday on State of the Nation, and he talked about leverage. And the only leverage I think that he could be referring to is the fact that we hold about $9.4 billion worth of Afghanistan's foreign reserve. Are we willing to release that to them? Um, I mean, that would be a huge hostage uh, ransom, especially when other people are still contesting the government of Afghanistan, including the former Vice President Amrullah Saleh. What I worry about, however, is we saw in Iraq, we saw in Syria and elsewhere, that oftentimes um, tribal gangs or criminal gangs will kidnap Americans and they're trying to ransom them off. But sometimes they're also sell them to terrorist groups like al-Qaeda. And that's where back in um, Iraq about two decades ago, we started having beheadings on video. I'm worried that the Taliban are going to play this game where they're going to sell an American or two every couple months so that they can add pressure in some sort of sick, twisted game to the Biden administration. And Pakistan, which basically controls the Taliban, has always wanted to humiliate the United States, and this will be their way of doing it while still maintaining plausible deniability. Boy, you use that word plausible deniability. The first time I ever heard that phrase, I got to tell you, Michael, was uh, from John Poindexter testifying to Congress in about 1987, 1988. And it reminds me of a phrase, arms for hostages. Boy, you're reminding me of that phrase now. But in one respect, we've already done it the wrong way, even though that was you thought you couldn't be doing it worse than you did it when it came to Iran back uh, in the Reagan administration. We've done it the wrong way in the sense that we have given them the hostages and we've given them the arms. That's true. And even if we did it the right way, and of course I'm critical of what the Reagan administration Yeah, no, did. no, I, I meant that was bad. No, no, this I, is even worse. Right, not. right. But it's also important to remember that while Iranian-backed groups released some hostages, as soon as the last load of weaponry and spare parts landed, Within a couple weeks after that, they had seized a great deal more hostages mm-hmm. because we had incentivized hostage taking. And so, are we really going to do that uh, to the tune of nine point four billion dollars? It was bad enough when the Obama administration paid uh, the Iranians one point seven billion dollars in cash mm-hmm. um, to release some hostages. And of course, Iran took several others subsequently, many of whom remain in Iranian prison. That's a hell of a point. If you think giving the malocracy of Iran over a billion dollars was bad. Think about giving the Taliban nine and a half billion. I and, mean, and I mean, that's real. what we're talking I mean, about. That's what we're talking about. And we also need to dispense with this notion, which is popular in the Biden administration talking point, uh, and unfortunately also in the Trump administration talking point, that the Taliban are distinct from al-Qaeda. And I wanted to get Islamic into that. States. Yeah, yeah, good. Okay. Go, go, good for you. I mean, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, basically, first of all, we know factually that the Taliban never disassociated themselves. For example, um, after the February 29, 2020 uh, peace accord was signed uh, by Zameh Khalilzad and Pompeo, uh, Secretary Pompeo's presence, um, subsequently, either Afghan special forces or American drone strikes killed two of the leaders of al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent under Taliban protection. So... I mean, flat-out false, we caught them red-handed. But just this notion that somehow in some political back room that they will disassociate themselves from al-Qaeda, that's a figment of the American imagination because we're not just talking about political groups. 
We're talking about cousins disassociating from cousins, brothers literally disassociating from brothers. And, you know, it's Afghanistan 101. That's not the way society works. Well, I was thinking about it as you were just saying it. We are asking cousins and brothers to disassociate from each other on the premise that one of those cousins or one of those brothers wants to be an ally of America. And that has got to be nothing but a dream. I I, I don't understand why people are talking about, well, ISIS is the enemy of the Taliban and ISIS is the enemy or ISIS-K is the enemy of the Taliban and ISIS is the enemy of America and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Thus, we can sidle up to the Taliban. That's it goes the other way more likely than it goes that way. I, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, that is true. And one of the things that has always bothered me with this is how Congress forfeited its oversight. And I'm talking about both Democrats and Republicans. And the State Department took advantage of this. And when various Afghans, including um, National Security Advisor Mohit, and then Vice President Amrullah Saleh, who is now leading the resistance in the, to the Taliban in the Panjir Valley, had objections to the way this deal was going forward and, and the logic that the United States was applying, saying that the Taliban and al-Qaeda have been disassociated, they wanted to come to Washington to talk to Congress. And the State Department simply refused to give them a visa because they didn't want Congress to hear what, what the other side of the story and what Afghans had to say. This is one of the reasons why, instead of being critical, I was supportive of the recent, uh, the recent trip by um, Representatives Moulton and Mayhir to Kabul International Airport. You know, they did it all right. They, the fact that the Pentagon and the State Department didn't know they were coming shows that they didn't uh, take away assets. And the fact that they, the Pentagon and the State Department didn't have time to create a dog and pony show or sit them down before a PowerPoint meant that they were exposed to reality. That's how oversight works. And the State Department has gotten so arrogant believing that they can simply avoid Congress. And Congress, unfortunately, has become complacent in this. You have a lot of experience with state and defense. Do you have time for one more segment, Michael, or, or do you have to run? No, I have time for one more segment. I would love it if you could, because I want to pick up on that, and I want to get your sense of where we go from here. I want to think about what it looked like from Saigon forward and what it could look like from 2021 forward, if we can. We'll do it with more from Michael Rubin, Dr. Michael Rubin from the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. We'll be right back. Back to the Seth Liebson Show. Michael Rubin is our guest, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, author of several important books, Seven Pillars, What Really Causes Instability in the Middle East, Kurdistan Rising, Dancing with the Devil, The Perils of Engaging Rogue Regimes. Michael, help me look forward a little bit. Um, after Saigon, we engaged in um, with ourselves in something called the Vietnam Syndrome, Ironically, it wasn't erased until we went into the Gulf the first time. Irony of history right there. But several countries fell to the Soviet bloc after we left Saigon. And I'm looking to what could be the parade of horribles that come from this. I know, ab initio, that you're not going to find better propaganda material for recruitment 
from the Taliban or al-Qaeda or ISIS or any other terrorist organization than simply the newsreels of the last two weeks. It's all they have to use. When this administration speaks about this successful evacuation, it seems to me that countries that don't see it as successful, at least for the United States, would include China and Iran, would include terrorist organizations. What do we have to look forward to going go, go, if you gaze into the immediate future? Okay. Three concerns I have. When Ronald Reagan withdrew from Lebanon, he had no idea that some petty Somali warlord, Mohammed Idid, would use that as inspiration to think that he could take on the U.S. military. And so in 1993, we had the Black Hawk Down incident. And not long after that, of course, you had Osama bin Laden, who had said, look, when you have a strong horse and a weak horse, uh, everyone naturally wants to ally themselves with the strong horse. He cited America being weak for the way Reagan withdrew under fire, and we had 9-11. Right. But in the near term looking forward, if I had to guess where the crises will come, two different types of crises. First of all, I'm worried about Pakistan, even though Pakistan is the arsonist in this. And the reason is that every time a country has believed that they could use radical Islamic jihadism as a tool of foreign policy for export only, ultimately there's been blowback. That happened with Saudi Arabia, that happened with Syria, it's happened with Turkey, and Pakistan, of course, um, is in the crosshairs of this now, and it will be extremely dangerous simply because of the loose nukes problem. Mm -hmm. But I also worry about, in terms of... Um, where we this could actually lead to a major war or a crisis of confidence, I worry about Taiwan. Mm. And China has already made clear that we um, that we can't be trusted. Mm -hmm. And certainly this will just propel into overconfidence President Xi's notion that he can have a military set to conflict against Taiwan. And frankly, China has already had uh, something similar against Hong Kong. But it could also mean something for, for NATO. Joe Biden said that, you know, this is just about Afghanistan and our NATO allies don't need to worry. But let me assure you that the Estonians, the Lithuanians, and the Latvians very much need to worry because of the way that the Americans spin things to ourselves to absolve ourselves of responsibility. Um, Donald Rumsfeld once talked about how we can't have an old Europe and a new Europe. We can't effectively say that the new members of NATO um, won't have the same standards of protection, but that's ultimately where we're heading. I wrote a column a few weeks ago that, unfortunately, I think that NATO is dead man walking right now. Did we kill it? Uh, I think Joe Biden has killed it. It's, it's been coming for some time. I remember um, about four years ago, I think I was at either Kenyon College or Ohio State uh, University. I was doing a debate with a professor affiliated with Cato, and uh, a libertarian think tank. And at one point, he turned to the student body and asked to the 200 students there, how many of you would be willing to die for Lithuania? Mm -hmm. And one student raised their hand. Mm -hmm. That's a failure of the American education system, a failure of a new generation, of an older generation teaching a new generation what the meaning of alliance is mm -hmm. and collective security. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about that as uh, my grandparents were from Lithuania. I'm just thinking about my, my future station here, Michael. That having yeah. been said, though, on a, more, on, a, on a far more serious note, NATO out of the picture, it looks like if history is any kind of prologue or guide here, 
I get this eerie feeling that this administration is going to now undertake doing things that are going to try and take its the this, the the American mind off uh, the American eye off this ball, but that will also be further inimical to our interests. Just like the Bush administration flirted for a few months in early '02 with this, and that is, I'm guessing they're going after Israel next. Um, perhaps, and you know what? Another example of the Bush administration is towards the end of the Bush administration when. Um, uh, Iraq and arguably Afghanistan weren't going well. Mm-hmm. Condoleezza Rice decided she wanted to do a Hail Mary pass to change Bush's legacy, and that's when she removed North Korea from the state sponsors of terrorism mm-hmm. list and fought this last-ditch effort. And, of course, the North Koreans just took that to the bank. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think you're you're absolutely right on this, but this notion that somehow reputation doesn't matter mm-hmm. is, is nonsense. The Dennis Ross, who had worked for several, I mean, a diplomatic gadfly who had worked for several administrations, both Democratic and Republican, wrote a piece in the Washington Post saying, look, America's reputation survived Saigon. America's reputation um, survived other crises. And this notion that somehow our reputation is going to be damaged by this is just untrue. That, I mean, that's just absolute nonsense. I was going to say a little cavalier at best, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the fact of the matter is, we are now calibrating our national security and international security more broadly to um, our spin rather than reality. And it's not just American national security, uh, which is on the chopping block. It's the entire post-World War II liberal order. That's what's at stake, and it's about time Americans realize it. Michael, last question uh, before I let you go. You've been very generous with your time. Michael Rubin of the American Enterprise Institute. You have vast experience, or at least vastly more experience than most Americans with state and defense and uh, the workings together and the rivalries between the two. Uh, who, who is this on, or is it the president of the United States? Well, it's ultimately on the president of the United States, and you know, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump, but at least Donald Trump was willing to answer questions from the media, knowing that that media was hostile. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, you have Jake Sullivan, who, if you look at um, the leaked emails from Clinton and so forth, is just a political hack. He's had no experience outside of the bubble. He finds himself as national security advisor. I don't think he has a clue how the military works. And then the same thing is true with Tony Blinken, who I think is the most naive Secretary of State since Frank Kellogg uh, tried to outlaw war in the 1920s. I mean, it really is a disaster, a scene of disaster. Michael, will it get better before it gets worse or worse before it gets better? Look, Winston Churchill said the Americans always do the right thing. They just try everything else first. Unfortunately, I think Biden's trying to prove Churchill wrong. Okay. Well, you're a gift, Michael, and a good friend. Thank you for spending some of your time with us tonight. Thank you, sir. You betcha. Dr. Michael Rubin, American Enterprise Institute. Check his columns, read his books. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Home roof or any other kind or repair or an inspection. 480-483-1775. That's 480-483-1775 or tradesunlimited.com. That's tradesunlimited.com. Tell them I sent you. 
they know me. I've used them. One of the um, one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit with you about. Well, you know what? This is a short segment. Let me get this out. I, I can't not mention it. <laughs> I saw it first discussed last night by Larry Elder, candidate for governor in California. More about that in just a moment in his race. But um, here's NBC Bay, Bay Area headline. San Francisco to launch pilot program paying people not to commit gun crimes. You see this story, Bill? You want me to do it again? San Francisco to launch pilot program paying people not to commit gun crimes. Okay, well, shall we be happy at least that they're not paying people to commit gun crimes? Maybe start with that joy. San Francisco is launching a pilot program in October that pays people $300 a month not to commit gun crimes. The goal of the program is to reduce gun violence across the city. We're doing this to make sure that we don't have more senseless violence, said Cheryl Davis, executive director of the San Francisco Human Rights Coalition Commission. The Human Rights Commission says the idea has shown to be cost of, a cost-effective way to reduce gun crimes in other cities. Oakland and Richmond have similar anti-violence programs. Weird, weird cities to look to for your model. Cities out of control with crime. Cities out of control last year with riots. You like this idea? I don't know why we stop... With gun crimes, if you're willing to give $300 to someone so that they don't commit a gun crime, I don't know. Think about the other crimes that tend to what? Could we do $150 not to commit acts of thievery? Half? Is thievery half the price of a gun crime? Maybe $25 not to commit an act of thievery? I say that. With tongue-in-cheek only because San Francisco's already done something very close to it by refusing to arrest or cite criminals who abscond with merchandise from stores or any kind of theft that amounts to less than $1,000. It's already being done. It's an interesting thing. You can reduce crime if you just stop calling the action a crime. Simply remove, you can reduce crime. But I don't know, I don't know where you go from here when you are now unwealthening, and that's what you're doing, the undeserved and the criminal class. Usually what we try and do in a sane society with the criminal class is isolate them from society with punitive measures not reward them with your or other people's wealth so as to allow them to purchase either more illegal weaponry or more legal items. We don't usually do that in a sane society. The federal code is the federal code, and the state code is the state code, and the municipal code is the municipal code. And last I've checked... I've never seen the criminal sections of them have asterisks that say, in order to follow this law, we will pay you. In order not to violate criminal code, we will pay you. I've never seen that in a criminal code of a state 
municipality, county, or federal government before, unless you live in the Palestinian territories, in which case you are paid for killing as many people as possible. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. I w- welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. Feel free to call in on anything on your mind. I Let me stick with California for a moment, having been there in the last segment talking about this new uh, Cash for Criminals program that they have where they're paying $300 to people not to engage, not to engage in gun violence. You almost have to think about the process and the application process for that $300? Or are they just going around recruiting people and giving them $300 not to engage in gun crimes? What's gone on in California is there are no words for. You've taken a paradise and turned it into a hell, progressives. That's what you've done. The only redeeming part of California anymore is what God put there, the beautiful scenery the beautiful vistas, the beautiful oceans, and you guys are doing your best to even ruin that. There's no excuse for having a regular fire season in a state. We just have a fire season. Spring, summer, winter, fall, and fire. Oh, it's just fire season here. What happens when you become inured to failure? What happens when you become used to to decadence. I mentioned briefly on Friday a very surreal story, at least surreal to me. It's not making a lot of news. It got a little bit. And that was a California parole board ultimately granting parole to the assassin of John, excuse me, to the assassin of Robert F. Kennedy, Saran, Saran. And It's an interesting time for California to do that, one in the midst of a recall election, and this is a decision that will ultimately be authorized or declined by the governor of California. Um, It's weird and eerie on several fronts, not to mention the fact that this was the first act of international Arab terrorism on our shores in 1968. In researching more of this, I learned something I never before knew. Maybe some of you did. I knew the PLO had engaged in several hostage actions to release Saran Saran. I knew he was acting on behalf of the PLO's cause, and the PLO tried to get him released through terrorist activity in the 70s. What I did not know was that Bill Ayers of the Weather Underground and his then-wife Bernadine Dorn wrote a book and dedicated it to Siran Saran. And isn't it interesting that in all the discussion about Bill Ayers and Barack Obama and how Barack Obama launched his political career from Bill Ayers' living room and how Bill Ayers... And his affiliated organizations were responsible for the rise, the political rise and success of Barack Obama. Isn't it interesting that in all those stories from 2007, 2008, no one in the in the media ever connected 
in looking at the books Bill Ayers wrote to see that he actually dedicated it to the assassin of Robert F. Kennedy? He dedicated the book to the assassination of Robert, or the assassin of Robert F. Kennedy. The most important thing I've seen on this was written, was an op-ed written by Max Kennedy, Maxwell Taylor Kennedy, one of Robert Kennedy's sons. And he wrote it in the LA Times. And he wrote this. Justice is not served by releasing a confessed political assassin, a first-degree murderer who is serving a life sentences, uh, serving a life sentence for his role in a crime against America. To begin with, the process the process was flawed, and he goes into the process and how no one representing the district attorney's office was there. And then he writes at the last parole hearing in 2016, the board rejected. Parole, stating that Saran, Saran did not show remorse or perhaps even understand the enormity of his crime. If the former, he is unrepentant and should not be released. If the latter, he remains a danger to society. In either case, he should not be released. Police, immigrants, truck drivers, farm workers, factory workers, the young, the elderly, all came together in June 1968 to stand along the tracks of my father's funeral train. Even then, our country showed signs of fragmenting along political lines in the way that has become so familiar in 2021. But I have always believed my father could have bridged that divide and help us heal our wounds. That was destroyed by the violent act of a single deranged anti-Israel terrorist, Max Kennedy writes. Because of Saran, we never got to live out that better history. He killed my father for his support of Israel. And the mere thought of Sirhan returning to either the Palestinian territories or some other place in America is sickening. I commit myself to doing everything within my power to stop his release. It'll have to commence, of course, with him battling his older brother, Robert Kennedy Jr., who was active in seeking the release of Sirhan. Sirhan. Self-hate can be attributed to a lot of, or at least can include a lot of different things and a lot of different people and a lot of different interests. It's never a good thing, but especially, it's a terrible thing, especially when it doesn't just involve yourself. You have problems with demons we can't begin to understand that make you think Siran Saran, who confessed to killing Robert Kennedy, is innocent. And the eyewitnesses like Rosie Greer, who had to wrench the gun out of Saran Saran's hands. If you want to delude yourself about all that, that's one thing. But to inflict it on the rest of society is quite another. I understand that there can be the psychological disruption of self-hate. It shouldn't translate into something that hates the rest of the country and every normative concept of decency. Mike is in Carefree. Hello, Mike. Hi, Ken. Um, it, it, it occurred to me as I was listening to the news and, and these mayors of towns that said, we've got 2,500 people here and we need interpreters because none of them speak English, that it, it appears once again that we've evacuated the wrong people. Now, if these are interpreters and people who are willing to put their life on the line for America... And they spoke English. Well, those are kind of the people that made America great. But on the other hand, you have people that don't speak English 
and we're able to get through all of the checkpoints of the Taliban makes one wonder whether or not they were, in fact, beholden to, you know, Taliban rather than America. Well, I, I have a question. i got to take a quick break. You can, you can answer it on the other side. I, I, have a, I have a question, and is this what you're getting at, Mike? But if, if we have Afghans that don't speak English and we're calling them translators for American soldiers, how are they translating? What, what language were they translating from what to what? If they don't know English, I mean, is it possible some of them knew Pashtun and Spanish? I, do you understand my point? We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Mike is in Carefree. Mike, during the break, I was uh, just uh, searching on the Internet a little bit about Afghans uh, permitted to enter the United States. And this is really very amusing, if not sad. But CNN decided to do a fact check on Ron Johnson, Senator Ron Johnson, Republican of Wisconsin who claimed that we weren't vetting the Afghans that we were bringing to America and to our allied nations. And CNN fact-checks it to find it false. And here's their argument. Here's their fact-check. Quote, State Department officials clarify that airport entry is restricted. Measures are in place to confirm all those arriving in the U.S. are eligible. And cleared to do so. President Joe Biden emphasized that, quote, anyone arriving in the United States will have undergone a background check, close quote, rating thus that the Afghan Afghan, uh, refugees are unvetted or Afghan assistants are unvetted because President Biden said they would be vetted. That's how CNN gets us there. Give you a lot of confidence. Joe Biden said they've been vetted. Well, I was listening to a, a former uh, ambassador, and he made a very good point about that. He said, the fact that you had a background check doesn't mean much, because if it comes back negative, there's nothing about you, and, and they, they don't know who you are or where you've been, that's a negative background check. <laughs> you know, So that means everybody who isn't on the terrorist list already could be, could be an al-Qaeda fighter that you just don't know the name of. And we've gone, you could argue that the Joe Biden presidency is the third term of Obama when you consider that his cabinet and so forth, which is so Islamophilic that, you know, we sent billions of dollars to Iran and gave him a blueprint to uh, a nuclear weapon. We then turned around and de facto gave them... 80-plus billion dollars worth of weapons in uh, Afghanistan that will probably make their way to the tentacles of Iran's terror organization. And then we imported probably 100,000 people from a country that has no loyalty to America. And we don't know, and they don't even speak our language, so it's highly unlikely that they have a great uh, sense of uh, loyalty to America. It seems, again, like uh, the Obama administration's game of setting up, you know, 
piles of sticks and pouring gasoline on them and expecting something nice to happen. It's that or it's Joe Biden as Richard Nixon. There comes a point, or Bill Clinton, where you just can't believe a thing he says. We're, CNN expects us to believe that all refugees are being vetted. This, I suppose, after we're expected to believe Joe Biden when he said we will get every American civilian and citizen out that wants to leave. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 